Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. And if you checked it out, please give it a good rating. It's a wonderful podcast. Water is one of the biggest driving forces of life on Earth. It's been incredibly influential in human history from the time we were hunter-gatherers looking for fresh sources of water to the uh, uh, agricultural revolution and building bigger and bigger cities eventually having plumbing uh, the way that it changed sanitation uh, irrigation and what is the what's the future of water are we going to have enough of this stuff how can we make more clean fresh water i just listened to a very interesting episode alchemy turning milk into water sustainable water management this episode is all about this very candid conversation about water coffee industrial practices sustainable value chain and social responsibilities with uh this man carlos uh galli who Uh, whose job it is to make sure that the biggest food and beverage company in the world is leading a healthy and sustainable lifestyle. Incredibly important stuff. You guys are into science. You guys are into learning, caring about the world, caring about our future. This podcast is for you. Check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. Hey everybody, in my humble opinion, this is a very, very good episode today. I think you're really going to like it. If you agree, if you haven't uh, yet had a chance to rate and review on iTunes, uh, make sure and do that. Share with your friends, all that good business, and enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I am at the University of Tennessee. I'm talking with Aaron Harden, who is an associate professor and associate head and director of undergraduate <laughs> studies here, and also came out to my show last night, so mm-hmm. that that you automatically get to be one of my favorite guests, and Excellent. any one of my guests that comes to see <laughs> my my stand up is is on my good side, um, and and you do some work that uh, that is I, I think very fitting for the program and stuff that I'm interested in. You you. Um, you especially it looks like um, especially in your early earlier work you did a mm-hmm. lot of work about how we um, kind of construct this idea about ourselves mm-hmm. right yeah I, how how did you how did you get into it how did you get interested in that I mean everyone's kind of interested in knowing you know mm-hmm. about themselves or how they're perceived well I th- you know it, it's really evolved a lot of my um, initial interests came from experiences traveling um, so I uh, studied Chinese in college and had opportunities to live in China and Japan and it's all very naive to me now but I remember you know as a young naive kid really being struck in the face by this idea like oh culture matters yeah. <laughs> you know the, the way I see myself and my identity is really culturally specific um, and so it was those experiences living in Japan and seeing for example that independence is not this universally healthy trait that it's something that's really uh, valued and useful in a lot of Western cultures and um, here in the United States but for a lot of people, made man. exactly, exactly. But you know, the people that I met in Japan who were more, uh, you know, traditionally independent, they didn't really uh, fit in quite as well socially. And um, I was also able to see that my idea of, um, you know, what I might have construed as being very dependent and people who were enmeshed with their families, um, that means something really different in Japan and sort of the ideal of multiple generations living together and that that's actually a really healthy, useful sort of thing. Um, it, Like I said, it feels naive to me now, but when I was 20-something, it was really striking to realize that there were all of these different ways of thinking about the self and relationships and how relationships are part of the self or not. So that's really where a lot of it started. 
Yeah, I mean, that is, I, I don't think it's all that um, naive. I, I think even even now, even trying to imagine what it's like to, uh, it, it seems like in Europe they do this a little bit too, where people will, will live with multiple generations. Mm-hmm. Um, and to do that, like by choice, right. more, more than, I mean, I'm sure there's a little, you know, everyone saves money and whatnot, but, but rather than in the U S that's like pure necessity. It's right. like you break your feet and can't care for yourself <laughs> for a few months. And then you have to live, uh, go and live in the parents' basement for, uh, three months mm-hmm. until one of your footworks. And then it's really embarrassing. And you got to tell people you're living with your parents. And this is is like this real social taboo, right. you know. Um, so, so uh, how old were you when you spent time? So I, uh, so I lived in Japan right after college. So I would have been twenty two, twenty three. Mm. Do you know? Um, do you know any other languages? Do you know well, Mandarin so or once upon a time I could speak Chinese. So I started like, studying Mandarin Chinese in high school, and then minored in Chinese studies in college, and spent a semester in Nanjing, China, studying. Um, pretty much now, all I can do is say I can't speak Chinese and order another beer, which are, those are fairly <laughs> really? useful it sorts just of things. All went yeah. away. Do you ever have dreams where like there's people speaking in, in no, Chinese? Not not a whole lot. You know, I we uh, went back to China a couple of years ago, and so um, some of it came back to me. I mm. could you know understand things that were being said around me, but still could not really say much more than bring me another beer i ask because i think i always thought that would be for whatever reason i always thought mandarin would be the language that i would want to learn um mostly because it's just so i think it opens up a quite mm-hmm. a bit of the world to yeah see and there's like there's a bunch of stand-up shows that china's actually having a weird comedy boom right really? now yeah and uh and so yeah i've been thinking about it but but it seems very difficult to it'd be so much easier to learn spanish because there's so many spanish speaking people that you could yep. go up and talk with and and uh so yeah mandarin seems um difficult so <laughs> so so you started noticing some of these uh uh, cultural mm-hmm. differences and 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 what were you what were you doing there at the time you were I was teaching english oh okay yeah so i i took time between undergrad and grad school um just to explore the world um, nice yeah so spent some time traveling um around so lived in japan for a year and then traveled in southeast asia and nepal um just because i wasn't ready to go straight from undergrad to grad school yeah, that's smart. Um, yeah, yeah, that is definitely real. A, a, lot, a lot of people just <laughs> skip over all of that, and they figure when they're done with school or whatever, and then it just never happens. Yeah, um, yeah, that's yeah. awesome. I uh, so. So then when you, mm-hmm. so then, so how much time did you spend there? So I lived in Japan for a year and then spent, you know, about five months traveling after that. Okay. And then you came back and you went Came back, to went to graduate gra- school. For? Uh, PhD in counseling psychology. Counseling psychology. Counseling psychology. Ah. Yes. So... Is that something that you use? Well, sort of. you do a lot of undergraduate I do. See, I am a licensed psychologist. So I got licensed in Texas and I'm licensed here in Tennessee. Um, I don't um, directly practice and haven't for a while, but um, often my teaching will involve uh, training some of our graduate students um, who are learning to be therapists. So I might supervise some of their clinical work. Um, But since coming to the University of Tennessee, mostly what I focus on is my research in undergrad graduate teaching hmm all right so so what um oh you said that was one thing your research in undergraduate well that is one of my areas of research but yeah research research and, and okay undergraduate okay teaching. great yeah yeah that's it that's what i thought so yeah. so let's talk a little bit about um about your your research and, okay. and so so you were influenced by this, and then mm-hmm. and then how did you set about studying some of these? Well, so you know, came back like I said, uh, just really interested in in cultural differences in the self. So, who am I? Um, you know, the role of important relationships in my life, and so um, initially started studying self construal. And as a counseling psychologist, one of the things that I'm really interested in is the role of work in people's lives. Um, so, you know, most adults, particularly in the United States. 
um, we spend an awful lot of time at work. Um, it can become a big source of um, satisfaction, problems. Um, you know, there's tons of research that when uh, people lose their jobs and they're not happy at work, um, that's not a good place to be. Um, so I initially, right. so my early research was really looking at how an understanding of cultural differences in the self um, can inform our understanding of um, the way people make career decisions. So there was this idea um, for a long time in vocational psychology that to make a good career decision, you had to do that independently. And so if you just went into the career that your parents thought you should go into, that that's a terrible way to make a career decision. Um, and so based on my experiences, you know, living and working in, in China and Japan, I thought, well, wait a minute. Uh, that's, that's, you know, if I were to Come tell on. an Asian American client, eh, ignore what your parents want for you. What do you want to do? That client's probably not going to come back to me. Really? Um, yeah. Huh. <laughs> um, and so really thinking about, you know, is there this, this cultural bias that assumes that we have to ignore what our families want for us? Um, and so for someone who comes from a more collectivist culture, someone who has a more interdependent sense of self, what does a good career decision look like? Um, so a lot of my early research looked at that cultural differences in the self and how we go about deciding what kind of work we want to do. So uh, that's uh, that's very fascinating. Yeah. So so tell uh, can you just tell me a little more about this? I want to know because I'm still trying to figure out what <laughs> what I'm going to do when I grow up. Um, and so uh, so maybe how um, could you talk about kind of uh, the average way Americans might and well, maybe some of the differences and do you see like um, do you see some middle ground where maybe maybe you could take a, a little bit of the better um, choice making from from either school yeah well so I mean th and there's lots of stuff being written I mean the way people the world of work has changed so much so when a lot of our theories of career development um, were developed that was you know you choose a career when you're 20 and you work for the same company until you retire and then you get your pension um, and I personally don't know anyone who has a job like that anymore um, mm. and so a lot of the theories sort of developed um, in a much different time um, but a lot of them had this idea that what you need to do is sort of match who you are as a person to a work environment. And so if I can figure out what um, my personality is, what my interests are, what my values, my needs, um, the things I'm good at, um, if I can identify those, I can then match those to different kinds of work environments. And that's a good career choice. So that's where I'll be happy. That's where I'll be successful. I'll be productive. Um, and so... Um, there is a lot of support for that idea of sort of finding where you fit in the world of work. The question is that idea of um, what does it mean to implement the self? And does that have to be a purely independent, what do I want, what's important to me, and that that's a good career choice? Or is there room for thinking about um, what does my family want for me? How does... Um, uh, uh, making my family happy, make me happy, um, you know, mm. to your typical, you know, white, independent Western person, that idea is like, no, make, what do you mean? Making my family happy makes me family. That makes me happy. Yeah. That seems like it's a really dependent sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, uh, I guess I'm along the independent spectrum uh -huh. because I, I embarrass my family for, <laughs> for, for a living. Uh, no, they're, 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 they're uh, proud of me and everything, but sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it's some of my various family, especially extended family, uh -huh. gets a bit judgmental and whatnot. And I'm almost like, ooh, that means I'm <laughs> on to <right>. something. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I mean, there's there's variability even, you know, I'm speaking in these broad generalizations. So I grew up in Ohio in the Midwest. Um, when I moved to Texas 13 years ago or what have you, um, a lot of my undergraduate students there were just appalled when they heard that, you know, I see my parents twice a year. And so for these, you know, white North American, you know, independent kids from West Texas, um, their idea of family and staying connected family was very different mm. from mine growing up in the Midwest. And they couldn't imagine um, that, you know, and I said that I moved to Texas and I see my parents twice a year. Well, why'd you do that? Because that's where my 
job is. Yeah. I moved here for work. That was unbelievable to them. Um, so, so there's a lot of variability even within cultural groups. So you talk about, um, it, you know, how, how some of the, of the earlier work may mm-hmm. not be as relevant in, in our modern uh, workplace culture. Mm-hmm. Do you, have you looked at any of kind of the history of some of this stuff or, or how, because it seems like, um, it, it seems like a lot of, we, we still have these, um, some of these old leftovers of, you know, from when most people were farmers or mm-hmm. whatever. So we still have to wake up at six in the morning <laughs> yeah. or whatever, even though you went out to a show at 10 o'clock on a Sunday. Um, and it, it, it it does seem it seems like over time i mean not that there wasn't a lot of other jobs that mm-hmm. people could have back then but i i'm sure th- things would have been a lot different where it would have been a lot more expected to be like oh yeah of course well you just uh, stay on the farm mm-hmm. and inherit the farm yep. once and then uh, and and then you know uh, again with um with you know factory work was like mm-hmm. Seemingly, I, I have no idea, but seemingly it seemed like this it was a, this great source of pride if you were a factory worker or mm-hmm. whatever, and you know, way back when. And now I'm, uh, uh, you know, I, I did a lot of factory work, okay. and there was there was not a lot of pride attached to it for anyone around. Mm-hmm. It was more like um, imprisonment. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a lot more of the feeling. So I guess these things are all very flexible. Yep. Um, so. So I was just curious if if um, if if you factor any of that in with it, just just change over time in mm-hmm. how you're evaluating how people are making these career decisions. Absolutely, and and you know there's some more contemporary um, you know theories of career development that really focus on this idea of career adaptability and that um, you know making a good career choice um, and finding satisfaction and fulfillment in work is uh, perhaps less about that exact match of you know what do I want to do with a specific job that'll let me do that, but how do I sort of have the the skills and the mindset and the way of being that will let me Um, respond to changes in the work environment and sort of move from one job to another. How do I recognize those opportunities? How do I learn what I need to learn on the job? Um, Because it is so rare now for someone to get a job and then stay in that same even line of work for lots of years. Most people move around, whether they're moving geographically, whether they're moving from an organization to another, moving from one line of work to another. And so it's really thinking about what allows people to do that successfully. Mm. Um, and so, so yeah, that idea of adaptability of people sort of constructing a narrative around sort of the story of their work lives. Um, what does work mean to people? Um, again, you know, you talked about factory workers. There, there are debates about, you know, again, this idea of career and work being fulfilling and um, not everyone has the equal opportunity to do that. You know, that maybe assumes that people have a lot of um, choice and opportunity in terms of what's open to them. And of course we know that um, this is not a land of equal opportunity. Um, So yeah, there there are lots of interesting questions in terms of um, how people um, find meaning in work to what extent, you know, should people find meaning in work? I mean, so again, getting back to this idea of identity and self, um, does everyone necessarily need to derive a sense of identity from work? Um, maybe it's okay to go to a job, earn a living and identity and, you know, a sense of who I am comes from all the other things we do in our lives. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, um, you know, might be miserable at work all week Mm -hmm. long, but then they get together for the softball team or mm-hmm. whatever they get to be the captain of the softball team and then they they get to be you know the the, the king for that mm-hmm. <laughs> for that little, yeah and that's kind of what they need you know they might feel like they're you know on the bottom of mm-hmm. of, of whatever hierarchy which i mean i guess we have titles and everything but it is still kind of an imaginary yeah. construct um yeah. 
And so, of course, you know, the goal is not for anyone to be miserable at any point. And so I think even in, you know, very mundane sorts of work, um, you know, I think if we can find ways to help people um, still be satisfied in that, um, have a sense of efficacy, um, competence, I think that's still the goal. The question is, um, you know, do we need to think about everyone? Um, Does work have to have the same kind of meaning for everyone? Mm. That's interesting mm-hmm. I, because I, I, that's interesting that yeah we we do kind of consider how we're perceived by others because I guess the you know the factory work is kind of a nice example because back when there was and I don't know if this is just propaganda from TV and making the good old days look like the good old days or mm-hmm. whatever. But it it seemed like, uh, you know, maybe it was because factories were new and this was mm-hmm. like the cutting edge and uh, America's making widgets now and mm-hmm. you get to be a widget maker and this, this fancy new occupation. Mm-hmm. But then skip to a modern age where, where a person's actually doing the exact same thing. They're mm-hmm. sitting there and pre- pulling the lever or whatever all all day long mm-hmm. and, and maybe even less hours now than, right. than back then. Maybe even better conditions, probably better food in the break mm-hmm. room and all sorts <laughs> of you know human resources making sure no one's giving you too hard of a time. But... Uh, but but then uh, less of a sense of pride, and I wonder if mm-hmm. it's is it kind of because uh, you know is some of it just because back then it was mm-hmm. like well everyone would respect you that mm-hmm. ooh you're working in the uh, in the Ford factory right and whereas now people in your community are like oh <laughs> right you're working in that oh well good luck to you mm-hmm. you know so yeah i mean it get that gets at issues of of prestige and respect um also gets back into some issues of choice you know to what extent am i working here because this is something that i wanted mm. to do versus because this is the only thing that i felt was open to me um and of course different people vary in how important these things are for some people um prestige at work is is not really that important for others, it's hugely important. For some people, um, getting to work with their hands all day and sort of do the same thing over and over, um, that's that's really nice. Um, for other people, that would drive them crazy. There are a lot of people who would hate my job. Um, you know, I, I sit around and think and talk all day. Um, there are a whole lot of people who would not enjoy doing that. Yeah, I mean, even within um, even within jobs, people have completely mm-hmm. different ways of. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a comic, and I mm-hmm. talk with comedians all the time, and I'm I'm much more of a writer. Um, I really I enjoy writing. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm quite happy sitting and and cracking myself up like <laughs> alone it's it sounds it's, it's embarrassing to admit but it's honestly when i'm at my happiest mm-hmm. like, these are jokes that may never make an audience laugh or anything and and um and sometimes i have dumb ideas that i like that or, or that i i'll just throw out mm-hmm. and then an audience loves them and i'm like yeah um but but then other comics never uh, the well, or if they do write, they mm-hmm. it's one of their least favorite things about mm-hmm. the job, and they're much more about the performance and getting that feeling of having everyone yep. laugh. Like I don't, I don't get much from. Like, hmm. Yeah, just kind of like, oh, okay, that joke works. It's just like a way of evaluating how interesting how my work is uh-huh. going. Uh, I don't really feel like. Mm-hmm. If things go really bad, uh, that, that <laughs> then you feel that. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel it, but it doesn't really matter how great things mm-hmm. go. It's, it's not going to do a whole lot for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it, the only point is is that someone can have the pretty much exact same job, right? Um, you know, I guess you can't say that exactly, but um, and, and then and then have all these completely different ways of evaluating mm-hmm. it, completely different aspects of it that they attach to right yeah yeah so so how do so is the thinking that um if you're going to be happy at work or Mm -hmm. i mean as get as much fulfillment out of it as you Mm -hmm. can to kind of 
figure out those aspects that you can attach. I don't. Well, know. so to some extent, so this actually you know brings up some um, research that I'm working on right now. Um, so a lot of you know this idea of trying to match yourself to a work environment. You know, you might think about so who am I and what do I want and you know what would my ideal job be and to what extent you know does my job fit that and so you know you might have someone who's like oh my ideal job would have lots of prestige and variety and I'd get to feel like I'm important but you know what I don't get to do any of that in my current job so you know that sucks um, but based on some other research that I'd done you know looking at, at these ways of looking at the self um, so I have to back up here a little bit um, so when we uh, there's this idea of self discrepancies that we've got these different kinds of self so who am I who do I want to be who do I think I should be and that when those things are similar good things happen mm. so if I'm really similar to the kind of person I ideally want to be, um, I'm going to have, I'm going to be happier, have fewer depressive symptoms. If I'm really similar to the kind of person I think I should be, I'm going to feel better and not be as anxious since there's a lot of research to support that. And I've, I've done some research in that area. Um, but, uh, you know, a few years ago I started thinking, oh gosh, you know, really what we're talking about there is, you know, do I have what I want? You know, am I the kind of person I want to be? Um, and, uh, so I really started thinking, well, what about wanting what you have? Um, am mm. I, you know, am I, um, do I want to be who I am? Um, and so, um, a colleague of mine had done some research looking at this with material possessions is happiness, having what you want or wanting what you have. We then did some studies looking at, so for the self is happiness being who you want to be or wanting to be who you are. Um, and so we showed that it's actually both of those and that in fact, wanting to be who we are, do I like who I am? Um, to what extent is who I am now? Um, you know, something I want, that's a really strong predictor of things like well-being and satisfaction with life. Mm. Um, it's uh, also associated actually with a tendency toward personal growth and finding meaning in life. Um, so that's uh, that was a really intriguing idea. But then I also more recently extended that into um, the domain of work. And so we often think about, you know, does job satisfaction, you know, does that come from having the job we want or wanting the job we have. Um, mm. And so we did a similar uh, sort of study where we asked people, you know, tell me about your ideal job. To what extent does that describe the job you have right now? Well, now tell me about the job you have right now. To what extent do you want those aspects of it? And so just like with the self, those are, are different things. They're unique um, and they're unique predictors of job satisfaction. Um, and so when we think about people either matching um, themselves, so congruence in different kinds of self, or if we think about people matching their work environments, there are different ways of looking at that. Um, does the environment match me? Do I match the environment? Um, am I who I want to be? Do I want to be who I am? These are all different ways of looking at that match or that fit. Hmm. I um, yeah, I really like that idea. And, and when I when I kind of, I, I was thinking a lot of about that kind. Of, I, I'd mm -hmm. read a little bit about some uh, more like the material side mm -hmm. of of that um, argument and that work. Um, and it's 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 really interesting. And at the same time, I was it, I was doing one of my um, guided meditation series, mm -hmm. and and he was talking about. I forget what exactly it was relating to specifically, but but he was talking about this kind of gap between um, uh, who who we want to be mm -hmm. or what what we think we should be doing right. and what we're actually doing mm -hmm. and how we kind of get sucked into that void, you yep. know, and, and we we place ourselves in there, and it's that's that's a bad, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that could be a hard place to be in. Yep. Um, when you're constantly just trying to be something that you're not or aspiring right. to be something that you're not. And just really focused on all the ways that you're falling short. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, having goals can be a good thing, but if all you see are all of the ways you're not meeting those goals, that can be really demoralizing. Um, and so I think we also need to make sure that we very intentionally look at um, the ways in which we are already there, the ways in which we are good enough, um, happy enough, the things we have are in fact things that we want. Right. I wonder how much 
I wonder if that's changed over time as well, because now it seems like we... I wonder what the drive to want more is coming from. If, mm. if some of it's um, cultural, because we had you know shows like Cribs and stuff like that, where <laughs> it, it, hunter gatherers, presumably, <laughs> I mean, they couldn't imagine such things. Right. It, it, to compare yourself to the very say you're the uh, the biggest loser in the tribe or whatever, and you're uh-huh. comparison uh, comparing yourself to the to the top alpha male who everyone respects or fears or whatever mm-hmm. or gets the ladies and and to like wish to be him w- would be like uh, wishing to have a, a, a slightly higher like trim model of, of your car <laughs> nowadays compared uh-huh. to like where most of us are uh, compared to what we can what we see on TV right. with you mm-hmm. know, TV Cribs is a good example and, and maybe maybe some of that's going away I don't think that shows on the air any, I don't think people I care no as much about um, Robin Leach or uh-huh. whatever I, I don't seem to see as many of those shows as I used to but but I wonder if that's kind of I my thought is is that I wonder if it wasn't such a negative effect mm-hmm. back then to want mm. to be someone that you weren't or to want things that you didn't have. If it right. was, if if back then that was like kind of somewhat reasonable goals, is right. be like, oh, I'd like to be a better hunter, yeah, or whatever. Well, I mean, it probably depends on you know what those goals are because you know there's a big difference between saying I want to be a better hunter and saying I want to be the best hunter in my entire group. Mm. Those are very different goals, right? And there's a difference, you know, between saying I want to be liked by absolutely everyone and perfect at everything I do. That's different than, you know, I'd like to have a few really close friends and to do a few things well. Um, Those are really different goals. Um, And so I think our goals, our aspirations, the things that we feel like we want and need, um, there's a lot of variety in how attainable those things are. And so I think the more unrealistic, the more rigid, the more unattainable um, those goals are, that's when we might be setting ourselves up um, to to feel more unsuccessful. Hmm. What about some of the conditions in workplaces? Do you do any work? I, I, I'm not. Yeah, not so much. So, okay. I mean, you know, in, in the, the research I mentioned I'm doing now where I just ask people to describe, you know, tell me about your ideal job. Tell me about your current job. I, you know, we're just asking for very brief sort of phrases, whatever people want to tell us. I don't actually go and then look at. So what are conditions like in the workplace? Really, what I'm interested in are, are people's perceptions of what's going on for them. Hmm. So what do you, I mean, you already kind of covered this, mm-hmm. but, but, but specifically, um, with, with those kind of studies, uh-huh. what, what are you finding? What, what's like a very common, uh, answer that people are giving? So like in the workplace, um, so the, probably the most common response for, you know, describe your, your current job, boring, is probably <laughs> one of the most um, common responses. I haven't actually looked at the data to sort of, you know, quantify what the common responses are. I know that um, when we ask people to describe themselves, so, you know, we've asked people just in an open-ended way, you know, give us five words to describe the kind of person you ideally want to be. Um, so in sort of your typical, uh, white European American college student sample, we get words like, um, honest, independent, happy, um, uh, what's another one? Rich sometimes comes up. Mm. Um, but those sorts of words seem to come up for the kind of person I ideally want to be. Hmm. Happy is often one of them. Yeah. Um, I, I remember I had, um, June Gruber on was one of the first episodes and, and she talked about, um, kind of along the same lines of, of people who had the highest expectation Mm -hmm. for happiness Mm -hmm. in life, uh, often rated their, uh, their well-being at the moment or whatever mm-hmm. as as worse than than people who who had less expectations yeah. and were just like oh you know this is life and they were like uh, kind of okay with it mm-hmm. i guess yeah um so so that's kind of some of what you're finding with some of the work yeah well and just you know that idea that uh, yeah that that we can have 
very unattainable goals. And so I, th- I think there are the two pieces that, that our goals can be um, unattainable. And so when they are, and that's all we're focused on, you know, that, that I'm falling short of them, by definition, an unattainable goal we will fall short of. Um, and so so that's going to be problematic. But I think also if all we're focusing on is all of those ways that I'm not the, the best person I could possibly be, all the ways my current job is not my ideal, um, we may be missing things um, that are um, important. So when we ask people, tell us about who you are, describe yourself, and now to what extent do you want to be these things? That's a very different perspective. And I think most of us don't mm. often um, stop and do that and look at, well, in what ways am I successful? In what ways do I have things that I want and that I need? Um, when we always have that sort of future out there ideal focus, I think we miss seeing lots of things hmm so when when you talk about um i like that idea of of uh try, you know trying to stay away from unobtainable goals mm-hmm. i is that i mean there must be some cultural differences with that as well because it's a, it, i don't know if it's just mm-hmm. an american thing is this a pretty universal thing it, it seems pretty very american to me to be brought up as a kid to be like you could be president or an <laughs> astronaut and it's like no no you're not yeah, yeah, going no, to be any of those things yeah. at, at all well i mean i i said in america I, I don't know there's probably research on that i'm not sure i mean to some extent i think it's a developmental thing um and so certainly we know again getting back to like the way people choose careers when you ask you know adolescents and children what do you want to be when you grow up? You get some pretty funny answers. Like, you know, so little kids will say, you know, I want to be a penguin. That's what I want to be. That's, that's, that's unattainable. I don't know. That's probably not going to happen. Um, very unattainable. But, you know, your typical high school, junior high kid, you ask, you know, what do you want to be? You're saying, I'm going to be president. I'm going to be CEO. I'm going to be a professional football player. So to some extent, I think that, those unrealistic aspirations. Um, again, I don't know if cross-cultural research has been done, at least in the United States. There's like a developmental trajectory with that. And so we do sort of learn to rein in some of those um, aspirations a bit. Most kids eventually realize, nope, I'm not actually going to be a professional athlete. Uh, um, so that eventually I happens. I want to be a penguin at some point. <laughs> Wouldn't that be good? That'd be pretty good. That'd be fun. <laughs> But in terms of like ourselves and the expectations we place on ourselves and, you know, ideally I want to be successful and loved by everyone and never make a mistake. That's just never, that's about as likely as me being a penguin. Mm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, So uh, what, uh, what are the kind of, uh, differences you see on on those kind of um on those evaluations mm-hmm. when when you're asking people what kind of person do you see yourself being and those those mm-hmm. uh kinds of studies that you're giving out what are the cultural differences in somewhere like asia well so i haven't done any of that research actually cross-culturally so um i have done a little bit of that research um so within the united states so for example um so i've had asian american college students and european american college mm-hmm. students um fill out some of those uh questionnaires and some of what um, I found so um, it's actually my dissertation research. Um, so I've talked about the kind of person we ideally want to be. There's the kind of person I think I should be. Um, another kind of self is the kind of person I don't want to be. So the undesired self, who do you never want to be? Mm-hmm. Um, and so being as far away as possible from that self is a good thing. Um, and so in some of my dissertation research, finding that the undesired self is particularly salient for Asian Americans. Um, so again, on average, that avoiding the undesired self um, is a stronger predictor, say, of depressive symptoms or anxiety symptoms. Um, and that kind hmm. of fits with with what we know culturally. So if I um, am a more interdependent person, so it's very important to me to um, be part of my group, and, uh, you know, I sort of define my identity by my social relationships. Um, part of that is, is being, it's, it's a lot more important that I avoid 
failure, that I avoid bringing shame to the group than that I achieve my personal success. Right. So that avoiding the bad um, is a lot more important when you're part of a group. Um, Uh, And so it makes sense. Then you have to fall on your own samurai sword. When, right. when you bring shame to your client. Right. Well, so, you know, and, you know, this whole idea of um, there's, um, I think it's a Japanese saying, you know, the, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. Mm. Um, whereas in the United States, we say the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Um, you know, so in the U.S., mm. you know, standing out, you know, being unique, being different, you know, getting personal glory. That's really important. Avoiding failure. Eh, that's not a goal. Like winning. That's the goal. Um, mm. But in, you know, if you have a more interdependent sense of self and a more collectivist culture, there really is more that sense of, Oh no, 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 you don't call attention to yourself personally, you know, cause that's setting yourself apart from the rest of the group. Your job is to make sure that, that the, the group is functioning well. It's not about your personal success. And so that's where sort of this idea of avoiding failure may become more important. This uh, are there any? Uh, you may not know this, but mm-hmm. uh, but are are there cultures that you know that are kind of in between? It, it, se- it seems like American and Asian <laughs> yeah. cultures are like the two extremes. And of course, almost. I you know I'm speaking in wild generalizations here. That's, you know, we invite of, that on this yeah. program. <laughs> Yeah, I generally try to avoid that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, certainly, you know, I'm I'm setting this up to be much more dichotomous than it actually right, right. is, and certainly, even within you know this idea of individualist collectivist, there's another distinction between you know horizontal and vertical, and so how important is hierarchy, you know, within either sort of an independent individualist focus or not so there's lots and lots of variation Mm. um a lot of the research if we think about you know just the self um everyone has an independent sense of self everyone has an interdependent sense of self um and so it's really about for any individual which one of those senses of self is sort of more um chronically pronounced um but certainly any one of us in different situations we sort of experience ourselves differently we think differently there's you know this stereotype of the independent person who um acts the same no matter what and you know i'm always the same person and i have this stable sense of self really like Anyone who acts exactly the same with their romantic partner as with their boss, as with their best friend, as with a complete stranger is not very socially skilled. Yeah. Right? Don't, so- <laughs> don't have sex with your boss. Right. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, there, there are these. Well. Yeah. So, so everyone, right. you know, behaves differently and is different right, right. in different social contexts. We all contexts. Have to wear these many hats. So. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so so yeah, there's tremendous variability with any one individual within cultures. There's lots of in between. Right, right. Those differences are just kind of the more exciting. Right. Yeah, and uh, I you know, and it can be helpful to talk about sort of those prototypical stereotypical differences just as exemplars of, right. of what do these look like in the extreme. Do you think that you have uh you have two children, yep. right? Yeah. How old are they? Two daughters, uh 6 and 8. Six and eight, um, and uh, do you? It seems like the the trend. I don't have kids. I mm-hmm. don't. I don't really. I rarely spend time with any kids or anything like uh-huh. that. Some of my they don't friends' come to your kids shows or a lot. whatever. No, not not all that often. <laughs> I have more and more friends now with kids, so I spend a little more time here and there. But but um, but you know, I I bring it up because. Um, specifically a couple of my friends recently that I visited that have really young kids mm-hmm. um, that, that are like two or three and already in like these schools, like mm-hmm. these, well, these kind of daycare-ish things, but but it's a school. I mean, yeah. they're learning. Oh, yeah. all, and I was kind of looking through their homework and everything. And, and it does seem, um, I, I mean, I don't know if it's just a cliche that, that um, you know our education and how how we're treating young kids is is getting um, perhaps you could say like a little more liberal or uh-huh. whatever and 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 it does seem like there's a lot more of this emphasis on on um, individuals like uh, emphasizing what a unique snowflake um, you are <laughs> uh-huh. rather than I mean 
I felt like, and I'm not sure that this is true, but my perception of my education growing mm-hmm. up was very, I mean, I, I think I have a very high um, uh, threshold for ambiguity and adventure and, mm-hmm. and, and, and kind of don't, I always felt kind of confined. Um, I, I get that feeling very easy. So maybe that was just my perception, but I felt like there was a lot of, um, kind of structure, even in my public school of, of trying to get everyone to like fall in line, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, it, you know, there's a cliche, like everyone wants to be on the football team right. or, or, or whatever. Do you, do you think that that's shifting? Do you think mm. things are going more individual or I, I mean, I mean, certainly in certain regards, mm-hmm. like we're, a lot more sensitive to say people getting bullied for mm-hmm. being a different sexual orientation mm-hmm. or or you know or race or whatever it might be. So on that level, it's certainly very good to express, <laughs> hey, this is this is great that we have this diversity. Uh-huh. But um, at the same time, I, I do wonder if it's if it's shifting. Amer- if Americans are already in this kind of individual mindset and and this is how to live i wonder if we're going to get further away from yeah i don't know you know that's interesting so my kids are so young just last night you know we found something that our older daughter i think drew um last year when she was in second grade and so we actually pulled it out to use as an example of you know independence because i think the question was like you know to write a sentence about you know draw a picture and is it okay to be a copycat? And so our, you know, seven-year-old daughter last year wrote something about, you know, like, no, it's not okay because you should be your own person or something like that. And so she drew this picture of, you know, someone being unique and different. And her teacher wrote like, yes, that's true with a smiley face. And so there was both, uh, you know, that, so at seven, my daughter has clearly gotten the message that, that her job, it's a good thing to be unique and different and not like anyone else and her teacher clearly validated that she got the little marker smiley face and like a star um you know for repeating that That's it's funny to, to even unique. phrase it as a copycat rather right. than be like that's pretty is it good to work with others right, exactly, <laughs> and right. be influenced by that's people right. you admire that's right <laughs> is it good to you know you know learn from others and adopt <laughs> what they do well yeah huh. yes yeah, so even the way the question was asked is clearly Right. kind of leading well so so, uh, so we're going let's shift a little bit to some of your other work just okay. since we're talking about education mm-hmm. you you work on, you learn about learning i, I try right? to you yep. teach how to teach <laughs> what kind of a pyramid scheme are yeah, you i know <laughs> um so so can you talk about that work a little bit how how uh what what exactly um you do? Sure. Yeah. So I, um, uh, so teaching is one of the things I most enjoy doing. It's, it's the reason that I became an academic instead of, you know, just doing therapy as a licensed psychologist. Um, so I love, um, teaching and being in the classroom and hate money. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I'm I, I'm very happy. I, I want what I have. I don't yeah, have yeah. these unrealistic aspirations. Or <laughs> right, yeah. So, um, so I love teaching, um, and yeah. Um, yeah. So part of what I get to do now, in addition to teaching, um, I train graduate students to teach, um, and so I sort of dabble. I do some research on the scholarship of teaching and learning, and so um, bring all of the same, um, you know, with everything else I do as a psychologist, as a scientist, it's about, huh, I wonder what happens if we do this. I wonder if this works. Most academics, when it comes to teaching, are like, eh, I know this works. How do you know it works? I don't know, because I think it does. Scientists don't take that attitude to anything else in their lives. And mm-hmm. yet somehow in higher education, um, teaching is sort of this domain where people just sort of make stuff up and do what they want and don't have any training for doing it. Um, and so uh, that's the whole idea with the scholarship of teaching and learning is really bringing the scientific approach to what we do in the classroom, studying teaching effectiveness. Um, how do we know if students are really learning? What is it we want them to learn anyway? Mm. Um, so, um, I think arbitrary dates from 
uh, historical events that are lied about to promote uh, this great country of ours. I think right. that's the that's most important what, stuff. It, and that apparently is one approach. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so you know, just today I was teaching my class for graduate students on how to teach. And that's really what I try to get them to think about is what is it you really want students to learn? And why do you want them to know that? Um, and so a lot of the facts and things... I don't care if my students remember what an unconditioned stimulus is in six months. I don't care. Or if they can rattle off Piaget's stages of cognitive development. That is not important to me. You know, I've really realized over the past few years that things like, um, uh, you know, how do students think about the world? You know, do students recognize that there are developmental stages that children go through? Um, do students realize like, oh, science might be relevant to this question I'm asking right now? Um, those are the things that I want my students um, to be able to know or do. Um, so I'm constantly asking myself in six months or six years, what do I want my students to be doing as a result of having been in my class? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't see how you're going to impress people at parties without memorizing a bunch of jargon. But, um, <laughs> uh, but that that's interesting. I mean, I've, I, I think it would be nice to see. And I don't know a damn thing about an education, or I would have gotten one. But, um, uh, but I, I think it would be nice to see more of a focus on retention maybe, mm -hmm. maybe we teach a little bit less and a little more core principles and, mm -hmm. and kind of and have a more um, uh, integrated understanding of how that these informations and, and kind of these um, structures of mm -hmm. like if you're learning about evolution understanding how these structures affect our lives and, mm -hmm. and uh, relate to other aspects of life. Yep. Um, rather than just memorizing um, a bunch of stuff, but so so are you are you kind of studying like study techniques or or teaching? I, I, well, mean, I guess so, it's a little bit of the yeah. So I mean, the, the actual like the empirical research I've done has tended to be more focused on like a specific um, activity that a teacher might do in class, and is that effective. Um, so do students, do students learn the material better when they do that? Or, um, can you give me an example? Of well, so, so, um, one, uh, study that I've done, um, uh, with actually a friend from grad school and one of his colleagues, um, they developed this, um, reciprocal interview activity in it that I won't give you all the background on it, but basically, you know, the question is, you know, does that help students in class? It's a way to help establish expectations for the instructor and students to get to know each other, to have a conversation about what are the learning goals in the course. And so there was sort of this idea that like, gosh, this it seems kind of fun. This seems like it's useful to students. Um, so we did a study to find out if it was or not. And so we randomly assigned different sections of an intro psych course. Some of them did this activity on the second day of class. Some of them didn't. And then they just did the semester as usual. And at the end of the semester, we measured outcomes. And we found that, that class sections that had done this activity on the first day of class, um, they enjoyed the class more. They sort of, they felt this greater sense of immediacy from the instructor. They thought the instructor actually cared about them more. They were more invested in the class. Um, we had some data that didn't actually get published in the paper, but that they scored higher on some multiple choice items. So they seemed to actually learn more hmm. over the course of the semester. Um, and so this was evidence that doing this activity, giving students a chance to talk about um, uh, what's going to happen in this course, um, to ask the instructor, what are your goals for the course, for the instructor to talk to students about what do you want to get out of this course, that that sort of created an environment in which learning um, was more likely to happen, in which students felt more connected and comfortable. Hmm. Uh, that's. A, I mean, I still. I don't think it's completely fair because you haven't. Have you tested chaining them to a desk and shocking them and I have seeing not. if seeing if that I works? Not. <laughs> uh, I might have difficulty doing that. <laughs> that's. Uh, no, that is. I mean, I, I just. I like that idea because it is so counter to what. 
I remember education <laughs> being like that was very much just like sit in the desk and now start learning now and we're going to throw everything we can at you yeah. and keep and up. And how'd that work out for you? Uh, it didn't at all. <laughs> right. I did it. I, uh, yeah, awful. Yeah. Um, it didn't work at all. What are, what are some of the um, common mistakes or well i I don't know if Mm -hmm. if you want to comment on that or if that's fair to call them mistakes Mm -hmm. necessarily but but what are the what are some of the trends that you could see like easy sort of fixes that that professors could be making Mm -hmm. kind kind of like that yeah i mean i think for me that the thing that has most transformed my own teaching is something i was uh, talking about before it's this it's called backward course design and it's this idea that we um the traditional way of designing a course is you take a textbook you teach the stuff in the textbook and then you give students a test and you say oh i guess you learned something um backward course design is you start with what is it i really want students to know so those questions like in six months or six years what is it that i want students um to really take away from this course so you do that first then you ask yourself um What's the evidence I would accept that they're doing that? So like for me in my introductory psych course, I realized that, you know what? Like I said, I don't care if they can name Piaget stages, but in six months or six years, if students who've taken my class can, you know, open their, you know, social media and as they're scrolling through stuff and they see something, if they can stop and think, huh, is that really true? How would I know if that's true? What's the evidence for that? Is that, you know, does that make sense based on what I know about how the human brain works? Right. Like my work here is done. That would be awesome if I could get my students doing that as a result of my course. So that's the evidence that I would ex- accept, right? So if they could do that with their, you know, on their social media, as they're reading something, as they're listening to some, you know, podcast, if they're asking those questions, that's what I, you know, want them doing. Um, so, so then the next step is, so now how do I design my course to make that happen? So what that suggests is um, I should be doing those sorts of things in class, right? I should be bringing in things from my own, um, you know, news feed. I should be bringing in current events and having them ask questions about them, right? My um, On my exams, I shouldn't only be asking, you know, factual multiple choice questions, you know, what's the definition of this term? I should be asking things like, okay, you hear a friend say something like this one night as a party. Does this make sense? Why or why not? Mm. Um, and so really focusing on why we want students to learn things. Um, if, if we spent more time really asking ourselves those questions, I think education would change. Hmm. Yeah, that's, um, it's interesting. I, I mean, I think an ideal kind of goal for most good professors would just be to kind of inspire them to keep learning on mm-hmm. their own. So like, oh, that's an interesting concept. I want to read more books about right. that rather than just have, I mean, if anyone can just be like, all right, I got this class this semester. I'm going to do all of this mm-hmm. work. And even they could even get an A plus or something. And, and within a few months, not, not have right. retained a single thing. They just did whatever work that they had to do. And, right. and yeah, well, Good. That's over. <laughs> you know, and for uh, maybe first getting back to the world of work, maybe for some jobs, that's a really useful skill. Just memorizing stuff and then forgetting it. For most of us to be successful in our lives, to be successful in the world, it's about knowing how to use information, how to find information, how to think about it. No matter what jobs my students go into, any facts I teach them, are going to be obsolete. You know, things are changing so quickly. I can't possibly teach students all the, the bits of knowledge they need to know. What I need to teach them is how to think about knowledge, how to find information and know what to do with it when they get it. Hmm. Um, that's very interesting. <laughs> I have uh, I have just like one more question okay. for you. But So before we get to that, mm-hmm. I, uh, what, what is the uh, the charity of the week this week, Aaron? Charity. So that's a, that, this is a hard one, um, but I'm decided to go with Tennessee Achieves. All right. Yeah, I don't uh, – <laughs> I didn't mean to make it a hard one yeah. for you. That's not an uncommon <laughs> response. Sometimes I, I'll tell the academic, I'm like, you got you to gotta think of a charity. They're like, oh, no. Oh, there's Which so many is? good ones. Yeah. Um, so I, I was curious, um, mm-hmm. about some of your work, um, uh, regarding, 
um, the lack of um, minorities mm-hmm. represented and and gender gaps in our uh, education system. Mm-hmm. I'm a bit curious about this because I, uh, with my podcast, I want to have a diverse amount mm-hmm. of guests on my podcast, and I try to promote. Uh, diversity and it's helpful to get other points of view mm-hmm. and people with different life histories and um, and so I do try to like go out of my way to promote diversity Yay. and it, it can sometimes be a little difficult um, in in academia to find mm-hmm. um, there's there's a lot of straight white dudes doing yes it. yes there are yes indeed <laughs> um, so so what what work are you doing in, in those domains yeah so again tied into you know the sorts of things i'm interested in you know how do people choose careers this question of so why is it that women um and some underrepresented minorities um don't persist in you know science technology engineering and math that's a question of of making a career choice um and so um yeah, so I've done some work um, looking at that in college classrooms, trying to understand, um, you know, what's going on. So there's this idea that, oh, you know, women and minorities, they lose interest. Um, we know it's not that simple. There are things happening in those environments. So barriers, stereotype, stereotypes, prejudice, um, unconscious bias, all of this stuff goes on. Um, and so I'm really interested in understanding um, when does that happen and how do we intervene? Um, um, so uh, one thing that I'm doing right now, um, and this ties back into the charity, is that um, we are doing some work in rural Appalachian high schools. Um, so when we think about increasing diversity, often we think about gender, race. Um, well, rural Appalachian kids, there aren't a whole lot of those kids going to college either mm-hmm. um, or going into science and math. And so we're actually going out into schools and trying to directly address barriers to going to college in the first place. Um, A lot of work trying to get kids excited about science and math um, uh, isn't going to work if kids aren't even considering going to college at all. Um, So we're trying to go out into high schools and really um, talk about um, why would you want to think about going to college? What are the things that might get in the way of going to college? Expand sort of these ideas and opportunities and then try to get kids excited about science and math. Hmm. That's interesting. It makes me think of, uh, have you ever seen these videos, Doodling in Math Class? I have not. Um, I forget her name. Um, anyway, they're just, uh, she makes she makes learning math really, really fun with a bunch of drawings, and it's, it's very funny. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, check them out. Okay. Well, anyway, thank you, Erin yeah. Harden, for joining me, and uh, I think we covered, um, we covered everything. I think we got it all. Uh, <laughs> um, this is a really fun episode. Yep. I appreciate it. Thank you, listeners, for being curious, and I'll talk with you next week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Next week on the program, I'm releasing the uh, the third and the final part from, uh, you'll remember, Thanksgiving week. I did released a couple episodes. I was at Central City Concern in Portland talking about um, homelessness and working with the homeless. So there's one more of those episodes uh, with, with my friend Leanne Peeler next week and uh you guys are really going to enjoy it don't forget it's the holiday season uh but the perfect time to think about being charitable you can always go to the here we are podcast.com website and and look at any of the links on any of the the guests any of your favorite guests um maybe any of the charities that you heard about and uh you know it's it's if, if you're like me, the holidays can be a financially stressful time all around. And so, you know, just imagine what people are going through who are in a worse position than you are. So it's a, it's a really good time to give and help others. So just trying to encourage people to do that is all. You guys are wonderful. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk with you next week.
Hello, I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL. The 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. Oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would, he even, why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, <laughs> oh my God. he spots his dear friend who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. <laughs> Scarface yells out his signature line. <laughs> Ciao Bella, it's me, Scarface. <laughs> oh my God. 